Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Thai Gap podcast. My name is Bogus Noog, and this week we are looking at why creativity is not easy. So, in this episode, we're going to look at why creativity is not easy and what are some of the universal rules to aid the creative process. And these rules go over the concepts of form and function, order and chaos, macro and micro, among other things. So let's dive in. I'll start off first by mentioning our socials. On Instagram, we are at underscore thigap. On Twitter, we are at thigap. And our email is mindthigap at gmail.com. Another free and easy way to support our podcast, if you're so inclined, is to add a rating and a comment on your podcast platform of choice. No matter what feedback you have or any criticism you may have, you know, whatever rating or comment you wish to add, all of that is welcome and appreciated. So as you may already know, certain platforms allow for a rating to be added. Certain other platforms like Apple, for example, where you can add a rating and add a comment as well. So your feedback is always appreciated. And that's a way to support the podcast. All right. So as is with every It's Not Easy episode, we follow a certain template. There's a slight modification to the template this time. We start off with the context in which we are talking about creativity. Then we look into why creativity is not easy. And then the third segment will be universal rules for creativity. All right, so let's start with the context. When I say creativity, what exactly do I mean? This needs to be further elaborated on because in today's colloquial language, creativity may cause one to picture or visualize only certain areas of work. For example, something to do with art or media. But when I say creativity, what I actually mean is both in the traditional sense of the term, which is, yes, involving art, media, etc., but also the entrepreneurial uh, sense of the term, because even entrepreneurs or business people need to apply a lot of creativity in their day-to-day lives. And I'm also talking about problem solving in general, you know, any kind of problem solving where we are required to think out of the box to come up with a solution. That's the kind of creativity I'm also including. So it's not just the more popularly understood usage of the term. All right, so let's move on next to why creativity is not easy. Well, like I just mentioned, the first reason why creativity is not easy today is because the definition of this word has somewhat been shoehorned into a few uh, areas of work. You know, it's a pitfall of our colloquial language that we use today. And it takes conscious effort to remind ourselves that creativity is not only restricted to artistic endeavors or, you know, something related to entertainment But it applies just as much to coders or accountants, people in business. Hell, there could even be creativity in plumbing, believe it or not. Case in point, the last plumbing-related thing that I can remember that was spoken of in association with creativity or in association with, you know, like a masterwork was the Roman aqueduct. Ever since then, I've not really heard any kind of association of plumbing with creativity. If you have, you know, just write and let us know. The only other thing as well, in terms of plumbing, you have to say um, people who are familiar with the city of Hyderabad, which is where this podcast is based, when the city was being built out, um, there was a major challenge of designing the drain system 
And so for that, a famous but known to be reclusive uh, civil engineer was actually hired, I believe, from Karnataka, who actually came over and built the drain system of the older uh, city of Hyderabad, which was so well done that every rainy season, we see the proof in the pudding, so to speak. Every rainy season, some areas of Hyderabad are perfectly fine. You know, the water drains perfectly well and the roads are not as impacted. But then there's another area of Hyderabad, the newer areas, which completely go under and, uh, you know, it causes a lot of damage to life and property as well. Year on year, causes a lot of disruption. And it costs us a lot as well on a yearly basis. So yeah, that is one reason why creativity is not easy. We have to make a conscious effort to remind ourselves that this term really is all-encompassing. It's not just, you know, artistic stuff, but even everyday problem-solving needs the application of creativity. And we're all, at the end of the day, using the same mental faculties to be creative, So that's just a reminder that is useful for all of us every now and then. Because language, as you know, tends to get hijacked. And for more on that, you can listen to our episode, Language, It's Not Easy. Check it out. The second reason why creativity is not easy is because there is this myth of originality. And, you know, maybe people with artistic pursuits are more prone to be impacted by this myth. But true originality is, it really is just a myth. You know, what I mean by that is every idea that we seem to come up, every new thought that we seem to come up is at the end of the day, a kind of a rehash of ideas that existed before. You know, if you look at the example of music, there's only seven notes. All the music that we've been hearing, all the music that has been composed for about more than 100 years now in many languages, they're all coming out of the same seven notes. So how original can it really be? Music is famously repurposed over time, right? How long is it going to be purely original, something that never existed in its entirety ever before? It's not really going to happen. The same is with stories. All of our stories are a repetition of some other story that existed at some other point of time. So again, as a pitfall of colloquial language, and you can say hijacked definition, You couldn't blame someone young who generally tends to be a bit more idealistic in their early youth. You can't really blame them for misunderstanding or misinterpreting the concept of originality. You know, because the dictionary meaning could be one thing, but in its practical application, we do have to emphasize that there is no such thing as true originality. So in terms of creativity, what originality really means is that when we are able to apply our own spin or when we are able to share a different perspective on something that is unique to us or that is authentic to who we are, then we can say that in some respect it is an original piece of work. It's the difference between inspiration and imitation. You know, in any creative pursuit, let's say if there was a YouTube video on the subject of creativity. And we listen to that video and we completely replicate it to use it as a podcast episode. That would be imitation. That would be going against the ethos or the ethic of creativity. But if we were to approach the subject of creativity by ourselves and we were to talk about it from our own perspective, through our own observations in life so far, that is authentic to us, Even if there are some commonalities, even if there are many commonalities between what we say and what someone else says, ultimately, 
if it's authentic to our experience and if we're able to share even a slight variation or a slightly nuanced output then also you can say there is some originality in it then also you can say it is not an imitation because it's it's not a pure replication but you can say it's an inspiration and the process of creativity the process of originality really demands that you add your perspective to it at the end of the day because the belief is that all of us are unique in our own way deep down and if we are able to dig deep enough to find what is it that makes us slightly different from everyone else what skills or talents do we find more amplified in us compared to those around us and can we really produce something with our own stamp on it with our own flavor of it or our own version of it no matter how fractional the difference is if it is done in the right spirit if it is done with integrity then you can still walk away saying that it was a work of creativity it was a work of originality and there's a famous quote on these lines i'm not going to go into who the score is from because that's of secondary importance but if you do want to know that i'm um, this is a direct quote so you can just look it up online but what is of primary importance is the quote itself because that's another human being who articulated ideas or this particular idea in their own way who gave their own flavor to it so the quote is it's not where you take things from but it's where you take them to and this is very related to what we're talking about here creativity originality this quote is from a very famous film director it's not where you take things from it's where you take them to the third reason why creativity today is not easy is because of a general lack of fundamental understanding of the concept like the couple of things that we just talked about of how it works of its practical application let's take a look at an example we spoke about in the previous episode purpose it's not easy where i mentioned something called a blank slate problem which is you know any creative's nightmare like if you can imagine a writer who's staring at a blank sheet of paper and they need to start and this applies to a painter staring at a blank canvas where do they start from how do they start why is this experience such a nightmare for artists you know what is it that makes it a thing of dread across cultures across continents i think it's a dreadful thing because there is an innate need or expectation we have that the first thing that we put on paper it needs to just hit the spot it needs to be right that's an unspoken subconscious expectation or pressure that we seem to apply on ourselves that need for perfection even before we started that need to get it right that need to avoid a mistake so how do we overcome that and are there techniques to make this stage which is often considered the most dreadful stage in the process of creation even if you are an entrepreneur and you're staring at a blank piece of paper and you're supposed to start charting out your business model you might face the same hurdle how do we overcome this are there workarounds or is there a formula that we can follow let's come back to this one of the more popular things that creatives or even people who have an obligation you know a time bound obligation one of the things that nowadays people swear by are deadlines because ultimately without a deadline we may never actually publish we may never actually submit that report that we were expected to 
it's the pressure of the deadline that more or less on average lets us procrastinate until the very last minute and at that last minute the existential dread just keeps building up and that eventually pushes us off the cliff and while we are free falling we tend to do whatever we can before we hit the ground we'll be ready with you know whatever we were supposed to submit and that's unfortunately how it works today but even more unfortunate than that this common condition is causing us as a people to appreciate deadlines to actually chase deadlines because hey this is at least something that's helping me make it without it i'd be lost that brings me to the next popular quote i found online related to this and it goes a busy calendar and a busy mind will destroy your ability to do great things in this world if you want to be able to do great things whether you're a musician or whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you're an investor you need free time and you need a free mind i want to go back to that quote in bits and pieces because some of you may be of the opinion that hey it worked out fine for me i had a report i needed to submit i had a project i needed to deliver and it was because of or it was only because of the pressure of the deadline that i ultimately ended up doing it i wouldn't really argue against that i wouldn't really disagree with that completely because i've been in the same boat in the past procrastination is like my second skin to be honest and so i'm well versed with this particular dynamic but there is something in that quote that separates it from the use cases that i just mentioned of a report or a project the quote says a busy calendar a busy mind so even if our calendars are not busy but because of the pressure of the deadline our minds are definitely busy in that crunch period your ability to do great things in this world will be destroyed if you want to be able to do great things twice this particular quote mentions great things so when we talk about things like a report or a project that we want to deliver on well we first have to ask ourselves is that really something i wanted to do a great job of you know because our relationships with our obligations tend to vary on an individual basis you know you could be someone whose job may be of peripheral importance whereas your passion project or your hobby or your true calling in life your purpose could be something else altogether and that really is what you want to do great things in so this quote especially is talking about the ability to do great things if we are in a position where that report that project that obligation is of peripheral importance to us then yeah fine we'll go with the pressure of the deadline we'll just do you know like i said jump off the cliff and by the time you hit the ground you somehow finish it and then you go appear for that exam or whatever cram in the last minute but there is a knowledge there is an awareness in all of us that we can't deny that by following that process of the last minute cram we know deep down that it's not really our best output not even close we know that had we not procrastinated had we really applied ourselves in a timely fashion we could have done a much better job of that now of course it goes back to the question of did we want to is it really something that is of primary importance to us so that is where i want to bring our focus to again i am only talking about the things that are of primary importance to us if you ask me things that are of peripheral importance even i would agree that i don't mind half assing them and just submitting by the deadline but the more i do it i know that there's a risk of habit formation 
I may get habituated to that style of work. And I might start applying that sort of process to things that are of primary importance to me. And that's definitely something that I want to avoid. Ideally, I want to, first of all, understand the distinction between things that are of primary importance to me and things that are of peripheral importance to me, secondary, tertiary, whatever. So I know where I need to focus my energies. So I know where I could probably procrastinate, but where I should definitely not procrastinate because I want more time there. Things that are of primary importance to me, I want more time because I want to do a great job of it, not just a passable job not just a good job. I want to do a great enough job of it that gives me that fulfillment, that gives me the unspoken acknowledgement that, yeah, I gave it my all. I didn't cram. There was no last minute rush. I tried my best. I gave it my 100%. So that's what that quote is really talking about, our ability to do great things. The fourth reason why I think creativity is not easy today is because of the myth of perfection something we just touched upon earlier in the blank slate problem, the reason why we find it so hard to get started off from a blank slate is because we expect our first moves to be the right moves, is because maybe subconsciously we think that if there are many do-overs right at the beginning, right at the onset, then there's something wrong with that. And that's first of all the thing that we have to liberate ourselves from, I feel. We have to come to peace with the fact that the concept of rough drafts, the concept of first drafts is thankfully not new. And probably that is something we need to embrace. Because perfection also is a myth. Perfection is an impossibility. It's sort of like the word infinite. We can't comprehend it. We don't know what that looks like. But just so our own brains don't short circuit, we need to have a reference term for that particular concept. We need to have a reference term for perfection, even though we'll never know what that looks like, even though we'll never reach it. We need to have a reference term for infinite, even though we're never going to get there. So these become references, these become ideals. They're never going to be practical, they're ideal. Something to aim at, but we're always going to fall short. And that's okay, because in the natural design of things, there is nothing that works with, you know, 100% perfection or efficiency. Everything has some degree of corruption. And if at the end of the day, we are made of those natural order of things, the five elements, there is no way we can do anything that's perfect because that's not in our makeup to begin with. So it's a fool's errand to chase that particular ideal and try to accomplish it in practicality. It's a nice ideal because you need that to aim something at. And when you fall short, inevitably, you just look back and reassess whether you were able to give it your all or not. Another quote I found related to this concept of perfection or the myth of perfection is that creativity is the art of not trying. It is the art of letting go. The art of not trying and the art of letting go. When it says the art of letting go, it's actually talking about perfection. Another quote I found by a famous painter, it goes, don't think about making art, just get it done. Let everyone else decide if it's good or bad whether they love it or hate it. And while they're deciding, make even more art. I think that's great because this quote emphasizes process more than outcome. This quote emphasizes removing the burden of outcome from our shoulders and leaving it up to others to decide whether they like it or not. Let them decide. It should be them who decides. And while they're deciding, make even more art. 
Of course, the word art in this particular quote is interchangeable with anything that is related to creativity. So those were the four reasons why creativity is not easy today. The colloquial definition of the term creativity itself, the myth of originality, lack of fundamental understanding, and the myth of perfection. So let's go past that now and look at how this problem or hurdle of creativity can be addressed in practical terms. Is there a formula that can be applied to any kind of creativity, any kind of problem solving? I think there is. And this next segment, I'm calling it the universal rules of creativity or for creativity. So these are mainly three things, form and function, order and chaos, macro and micro. Let's look at each one of them individually. Form and function. Form should always follow function. This is a famous quote from an industrial designer called Dieter Bohms from Germany. He's probably one of the few rock star industrial designers that we've known. So Dieter famously worked for Braun. If you're familiar with the household appliance company B-R-A-U-N Braun, he used to design products for that particular brand. And his designs had a simplistic kind of beauty to them. You know, a very functional kind of aesthetic to them. And they always stood out. You know, you could be like a middle class consumer and you'd be paying middle class prices for a household appliance that looks like a work of art. That's what Dieter did. And he was so influential in his works that he inspired another industrial designer, Johnny Ives from Apple, who was instrumental in designing many of the Macs, iPhones, many, many Apple products. He was very directly influenced by Dieter's design philosophy. And Dieter's design philosophy was that form should always follow function. Let me explain that with a few examples to properly illustrate what that means. So if, if you look at it in architectural terms, imagine on one hand you have a building that was constructed with the look of the building or the outer facade of the building getting more prominence or having a higher prioritization from the architect's point of view. So adding things like, you know, Roman columns, 15 statues of, I don't know, lions or gargoyles or something all around. For what reason, for what joy, if nothing but just to associate it with old Roman architecture, you know, just for the look of it. But are those fulfilling some kind of a function that is beneficial to the space around that particular building or that is beneficial to the people living inside? That is the functional question of it. There are many software offices in Hyderabad, for example, and some of them have been built to look very imposing from the outside. The outer facade of these buildings is almost entirely panels of glass. And then what I noticed is this one office, just on the other side of the glass, on the inside, you had a cafeteria or a coffee shop. And there were these nice looking sofas and bean bags, etc. arranged there. The purpose of that, of course, is again, the look of it. Uh, you want people passing by to notice your office and think, wow, it looks great. It looks like a jewel almost. So big, so imposing. It looks like it's just made of glass and nothing else. But then what, what do I see? Oh, from the street, I look inside and I'm able to see there's a coffee shop. You know, it's well lit. It looks so inviting. Oh, there's all these colorful furniture. So I could sit there and I could work all day or I could just laze on that beanbag and listen to my favorite music while I wait for my coffee to arrive. You know, 
But in practicality, if you were to actually enter that building and sit at that coffee shop, well, first of all, because of the thick glass panels and because the main lobby area is one unobstructed huge area with no partitions, etc. So it's a huge challenge to actually keep that place cool. And then in Hyderabad afternoons, you know, when the sun's beating down, if you're sitting at that coffee shop near those glass panels, you can't really sit there for more than five minutes. It's like hell. Even the sunlight feels more warmer than it needs to be. So from the outside, it looks all inviting and cozy and, you know, luxurious. You step in, you wouldn't care how much out of your league all of that is. You just wouldn't want to sit there for more than a couple of minutes because it's just uncomfortable. So there's only form there, not so much any function. Whereas a building that was constructed first with function in mind and then with a focus on the form, that looks more like no matter what season, there's not much of an upkeep that you need to do. There's ample amounts of light and there's cross ventilation. So there's no stale air inside. What that does is even if that building doesn't look like, you know, Pontius Pilate's descendants are living there, to the people actually living inside that building, their quality of life is only enhanced. And it's going to be like that on a day-to-day basis. Every day is going to be a more pleasant experience. Whereas the house we talked about earlier with useless Roman columns, gargoyles, lions, what's going to happen with all of those? It's going to be a bitch to maintain that, to keep it clean. The more number of nooks and crevices you create, all kinds of things are going to start growing in that, shitting in that. It's just not practical. So that was an example in architectural terms. If you think about it in artistic terms, like painting or photography, let's take photography. Even if you're a casual consumer of photography, even if you don't know much about photography, as a layman, you're still able to distinguish which photos actually mean more or attract your eye for longer and which do not. There's an abundance of photos that lack meaning today. So if you think about it in terms of form following function, what that means is function should come first and then form should come after that, right? Unfortunately, in photography today, because it's such a visual medium, again, slippery slope, colloquial misunderstandings, hijacking of philosophies, all of that leads people to focus more on the form first. Okay, this just looks aesthetic, This just looks pleasing to the eye. Click. How many of those photos are you going to take? How many of those kind of photographs are people going to consume or people going to appreciate when there's millions of photos that are being published by millions of other people? It's gotten to a point now where AI is able to generate photos, realistic photos, if you just provide a few text prompts. And that funnily enough, is prompting people to create YouTube videos like, is photography dead? (laughs) Maybe your photography is dead. But coming back to form and function, what is missing there? How does form following function work in photography? What is the function? The function is, what is the photo about? Why did you take that photo in the first place? Is there an emotion behind it? Is there an intention behind it? Is there a story behind it? Are you able to capture that emotion or story purely in the visual dimension? Or are you at least able to express or articulate that story or emotion in the title of your photo or in the caption of your photograph? 
and when someone comes across that are they able to resonate with your intent your story or your emotion is there a meaning to your photo that's three layers deep or is it just a superficial reproduction of something that was there in the real world with no rhyme or reason so is it purely just form without function this brings me to another quote that i came across that's related to this particular rule i think it goes create with the heart but build with the mind i think this can be related to form and function in a way because function is the heart function is the heart and the soul form is something you could associate with mind so this particular rule says form should always follow function function must always come first then we focus on the form that is the proper order of things the second universal rule is order and chaos this also goes back to natural design that is how things are designed in nature and it's at the very fundamental core of the creation process itself out of chaos you have some form of order forming order and chaos what i mean by that is if we appropriately use both of these things during the creative process it would help us get through that initial hurdle with a lot more ease and not just get over the initial hurdle but also right up until the final stage right up until we are publishing or putting our work out there for everyone else to see right up until that last stage the application of order and chaos in the creative process is what really helps move things along what do i mean by that let's go back to the blank slate problem we talked about what the hurdle was in getting things started but it's not just the subconscious need or expectation of perfection or to get things right in the first go it's also the need or expectation that we would begin in the in the right order of things as we intend subconsciously that's never going to happen so when we are at that stage of problem solving which is the first stage where we're looking at a blank sheet of paper arguably that's our most vulnerable state you know that's the most vulnerable state of the creative process you can say so instead of being defensive about it what if we try to apply the credo offense is the best defense what if we try to be offensive about it in that stage there's something holding me back there's something that makes me dread this particular stage of the creative process so what if to counter that i want to go on the offensive now how does that look like One example I can give you that I know of and that I apply myself is to just vomit everything I have or that I'm consciously aware of at that particular moment as related to that idea or that project just throw everything on the paper without any order without it needing to make any sense without it needing to be right just vomit it everything If the first thing that I come up with is title, vomit the title, just write it down there. If the first thing that I can think of are a few examples, like we're talking in the example of a podcast episode, then write down the um examples first. Whatever comes to mind first, just keep vomiting it out. Throw everything at the wall, let everything stick. Let's imagine we are trying to write a script for a movie. Every movie has 3 acts. There's no rule that we would come up with our ideas in linear fashion. you could imagine the climax of the movie first before anything else you could imagine a few dialogues first before anything else you could imagine how the movie starts and you probably have nothing else yet so the trick is to go on the offensive and throw out whatever we have in that moment first of all fuck the order of things fuck being right fuck being correct about it 
Now, once it's all there, once we are sure, we're confident that we've exhausted everything, then we take a couple of steps back and we take a look at what we've got up on the wall for now. Then we can say, all right, now I can start reordering things. I have a vague order of things now. I can see there are gaps and there are gaps here, there are gaps here, there are gaps here. So the next thing I need to think of is these things that I'm drawing a blank right now on. So what we've done there is we've gone on the offensive and rather than succumbing to any subconscious expectations of perfection or getting the things in the right order and getting them right, we just liberate ourselves from all of that bullshit and we start throwing things at the wall in random order, whatever we have inside of us, empty it. Then we start ordering. So what we're doing there is we're starting off with pure chaos, throwing everything. Then we are reordering. So we're introducing some order into it. So this process of creativity looks like a continuous handshake between order and chaos and order and chaos until you're satisfied. Because ultimately, pure creativity, ideas that you did not know you had, ideas that you know you have inside of you, but they're vague, they're undefined, you need to somehow pick them out. All of that is nothing but chaos. Pure creativity resides in chaos. So for us to be able to tap those ideas from within, we need to kind of dive into the abyss. We need to kind of explore that dark cave because there are ideas in there, but we have no clue, no map, nothing. So then order is like the rope that you tie to yourself or order is like the breadcrumbs that you throw on the way so that you know how to find your way back out of it. If you look at painters, let's imagine a painter staring at a blank sheet of canvas, not knowing how they're going to start, where they're going to start. So this state is pure chaos right now. There's no order. There's no organization. There's no direction. There's just a blank sheet of paper, no margins, pure chaos. How do we start? We take the help of order. Let's start with the basics. Do I know what I want to paint about? Is it an object? Is it an emotion? Is it a mood? All right. That's one question to answer. The next question is, do I know what colors I want to use primarily in this? Yes or no? If the answer to that is no, then okay, do I know what emotions I want to convey in this particular piece of art? Once you find the answer to that, then which colors am I going to associate with these three or four emotions that I want to portray? All right, let's find those colors. Now I have those colors. Do I know if I want to start with the foreground first or the background first? You know, so what's happening in this process is even though we're starting off from a dreaded place of pure chaos, just introducing some order into it helps us get started, helps us along that process of answering the questions that we need to answer to find our own sense of direction. It's like lightning rods. Picture a cityscape and there's one skyscraper that's way above everything else in the skyline. And that skyscraper has a huge lightning rod on the top of it. The dark, stormy sky that looms over the skyscape is chaos. Now, without that lightning rod, chaos could strike anywhere at that building because ultimately it's going to look for, you know, sharp points, I guess. Without that lightning rod, there'd be no way to predict where lightning could strike that particular building. If it would cause any damage, how bad that damage would be. But you stick one lightning rod at the top. What you're doing is you're introducing order into all of that chaos. You're making sure that if lightning strikes, this is the most likely place it's going to strike. It's going to strike the lightning rod. 
And as human beings, you know, the human condition is such that we crave both things in different measures. We crave order sometimes. We crave chaos sometimes. We need both of these things to survive. We need both of these things to function. For example, if you're growing up in a strict convent, you know, that's walled off to the outside world, all the rules and regulations are extremely strict. They're very disciplinarian. Everything you do is being watched. That's a situation with a lot more order in it. And so it's natural for kids to act out or to lash out, basically to crave some kind of chaos because there's too much order and they can't take it. Contrast that with a complete lawless society, you know, where law and order is nothing but a joke. And there's no saying who's going to get shot walking down the street. There's no saying where the next accident is coming from because it's completely lawless. There you'll find people craving more order because it's too much chaos, too much unpredictability. This example also applies to something like meditation. Meditation is extremely challenging because ultimately the ask is that we empty our minds. It's not easy, right? So the thing that they prescribe to people starting off is to find one anchor point to focus on. Just one anchor point. To some people, that could be to just focus on their breathing. Focus on how you're breathing in and you're breathing out. Just focus on that one thing. What happens because of focusing on this solitary anchor point is that helps you sort of relegate everything else, all the other thoughts to the background, to a point where they slowly start to disappear. Another technique that is prescribed to newcomers or beginners is to sit in a dark room, pitch dark room, and have just one candle burning, you know, at some distance away from you. And you just look at the flame. Nothing else in that room should be visible to your eyes except for the flame of that candle. And now you just keep your eyes open, you focus on the flame and nothing else. That's another anchor point. So isn't it funny that if I had to just shut my eyes and empty my mind without any aid, then it's near impossible for me to do it. But if I have just one solitary point of focus, one anchor point, that makes it easy for me to empty the rest of my mind. How crazy is that? But what's happening there as well is you just shutting your eyes without any aid, without any anchor point, is to deal with chaos in its pure form, which makes it near impossible. But to introduce some order into that chaos, and in this case, it is just one anchor point. Introduce just that one anchor point into that chaos, and it becomes so much more easier to navigate through it now. That is how important order and chaos is to the process of creativity. And we need to keep using both of them, as is the need. Order after chaos, after order after chaos, after order after chaos, until, first of all, we overcome the initial hurdle of the blank slate, and then it can continue to help us until we reach the last stage of our creative process. So a quote that I found related to this goes like, Be regular and orderly in your life so that you may be violent and original in your work. What this quote is talking about in effect is channeling. Yeah, and this is something that speaks to me because especially if you're like me, you know, having a regular day job, but then also some passion project on the side that you want to pursue, some hobby that you really want to lose yourself in and involve yourself completely in. What this talks about is because we're made up of the natural elements, there is some amount of order and chaos inside us as well. Depending on situations, depending on where we are, we will end up craving the other inevitably. 
So all of the frustrations, all of the emotions or thoughts that go unexpressed in one sphere of our lives, for whatever reason, we can actually use that. We can actually channel that as an output into another sphere of our lives. That's what this quote is talking about. Be regular and orderly in your life so that you can be violent and original in your work. I think it's really important in today's cultural landscape with how there is more and more political correctness that is being thrust upon, that is being engineered into our popular discourse. We definitely need an outlet to counter that. Another quote I came across was, creativity is obscured by the conscious mind. That's it, that's the quote. Creativity is obscured by the conscious mind. In a sense, what this is talking about is that chaos is essential to the creative process. The conscious mind here is a parallel for order. You're in your senses. How much of that helps creativity really? It's not the source for it. The source is always going to be chaos, which needs to be explored, which is dark, undefined, without boundary. And that's why, you know, they say creativity needs courage at the end of the day. Any kind of creativity needs courage. So while that is true for chaos, just hurling ourselves into the chaos is not really going to help us. We might get lost, we might go mad, any amount of things can happen. We still will need some amount of order to help us come back. And that's about order and chaos. The third universal rule is macro and micro. This again goes back to natural design. In the natural design of things, there is a concept called fractality. Nature's design is fractal, which means it is self-replicating, self-repeating. What fractal means is, let's say you have one object. If you cut a small piece of that object and look closely into that, you're going to find that the complete object is once again visible to you in that small piece, just in a smaller scale. It's a fascinating thing nature does. I would definitely encourage anyone interested to look up fractal design online and what that means, what that looks like. In the interest of time, I'm just going to move on. But this is related to macro and micro. That's the reason why I mentioned it. This is the reason why there's that popular saying in occult philosophy, in esoteric philosophy that goes as above, so below. You know, shady people, naked under robes, meeting in secret locations, praying to owl statues, kind of what they repeat among other people, of course. As above, so below. It's a very popular saying. And in effect, what that means is it tries to reinforce the fact that what is on this earth is not so different, not so isolated, not so unique from what is above it in the sky. It also tries to reinforce the fact that everything in this universe is interconnected. Nothing exists in isolation. It goes to such an extent that the three pyramids of Giza, the main ones, the big ones, they are in perfect alignment with the Orion's belt, the three stars up in the sky. Those three pyramids were deliberately made to align with those three stars in the Orion's belt. But come back to macro and micro. Why is this very important to the creative process? This is again something I touched upon in our previous episode, Purpose, It's Not Easy. We talked about an overarching goal. You know, what is that one goal that sits above all of the small goals that we have in life? What is that one goal that is all-encompassing? We need to have a similar process in our creative process as well. So before we are getting started with whatever, you know, our endeavor is, we need to be aware of what is the overarching goal? What am I trying to do with this really at the end of the day? What is my objective? 
in business terms, I may be starting off my company with one particular product. I may be offering one particular service for now. Sure, but in due course of time, I may be adding more products to my portfolio. I may be offering more services as well. I may be entering new markets in future. All of these things will require me to do daily firefighting, to make hundreds of small decisions on a daily basis. That is inevitable. But ultimately, I'm not just making a few products here. I'm not just offering a few services here. I'm also creating or building a brand, which, you know, I want my customers to associate me with. When they think of the brand, I want them to think of a few certain things, a few certain values. And I want to maintain that. I don't want that to change. So that is the overarching goal. That is the North Star. That is the macro. All the daily decisions that I have to make as an entrepreneur, all the hundreds of decisions that I have to take on a daily basis, those are my micro decisions. So if I just randomly keep making hundreds of micro decisions on a daily basis, what is ensuring that my company is still staying true to our overarching goal? What is ensuring that our micro decisions are eventually going to lead us or are going to ensure that they maintain us with our macro goal, with our overarching goal? That's the question. If I want to make a movie on jealousy, let's say that's my macro goal, that this movie needs to communicate the negative impact of jealousy. Hypothetically, let's just say. So now if I have to come up with characters, if I have to come up with dialogues, I have to come up with a screenplay, I have to come up with a title, all of these are micro decisions that I have to take, but I can't just be taking them in any random order. Overall, after having spent, you know, six months, eight months shooting this thing, after having spent making hundreds and hundreds of decisions with people from various departments working on the film, when we edit it all together and we look at our first cut, it still needs to look like a movie that communicates the negative impact of jealousy, right? At the end of it, it can't just come out like a comedy that I had no intention of making. This is the purpose of macro and micro. This is again a duality that we keep using both of them to ensure that we don't get derailed. Order and chaos was another duality like this. Form and function was another duality like this. But in micro and macro, we first of all need to be aware of what our macro goal is. And we need to get that right before we start. Because that's going to be our North Star. That's going to be the immutable, immovable thing. So that requires some effort and focus and concentration to get right, first of all. But once we have it right, every micro decision we make from beginning to end, we may land on a decision because it makes perfect sense. It makes fiscal sense. It makes sense creatively, you know, whatever. For whatever reason, we end up leaning towards one decision versus another before fully committing to it. Always we must do a check with the macro goal as well. Okay, I'm shooting my film on jealousy right now and I have a decision to make between two or three different ways to shoot this scene. I know one way is the most cost-effective way, for sure. So fiscally, financially, this is the one that makes most sense. And my most immediate need is to keep the movie within the budget. So do I just go with that decision? Up until now, the reasoning is solid. So why not just go with it? But hang on, before I commit fully, let me just do a quick check with my macro goal. If I shoot the scene in this way versus the two other options that I had, is this cost-effective scene 
is this frugal scene still doing the best job of communicating my macro intent or are any of the two other options doing a better job of that if i happen to find that option number 2 is doing a better job of staying in alignment with my macro goal and it's probably costing a little bit more than the most conservative option then it makes sense to go with option number 2 so i was not only able to decide or i was not only helped in my decision making process by just plain common sense or being aware of micro requirements like budget etc but i also had another aid i had another point of help which was my macro goal regardless of all these other things that is another source that helps me ensure that what i end up with is actually what i wanted to do to ensure that i did not get derailed anywhere in the middle that is the importance of macro and micro so overall i would say the creative process is greatly greatly aided by using these three philosophies or these three sets of rules form and function order and chaos and macro and micro using these appropriately not only ensures that we overcome that initial hurdle of the blank slate as quickly as possible but it also ensures that we are able to extract as much potential we possibly could from ourselves and also that we were able to ensure consistency macro and micro is what ensures consistency of purpose throughout and that's the episode guys wow i don't think there's been an it's not easy episode that has ever gone this long but once again it was a lot of fun i think there were a lot of important i would say even secrets in this particular episode these are real open secrets so if you stuck around this long once again kudos to you i really appreciate it and uh, i would appreciate it even more if you gave us your feedback rate the podcast whatever you think is appropriate leave a comment where you can get in touch with us uh, let us know what you thought on twitter we are at thigap on instagram we are at underscore thigap and our email is mindthigap at gmail.com and to sum it all up ladies and gentlemen that is why creativity is not easy thigap subscribe and share